Father God, we thank you that we can worship you in song and we can confess our sins and we can be encouraged that you have forgiven us our sins and cleansed us uh, from all unrighteousness. And now, God, in our worship, we kind of dedicate ourselves to looking at your word. So would you be our teacher? Would you speak to us and guide us as we worship you and study? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we uh, dove into the book of Exodus. We made it up through most of chapter 4. One of the things that we saw in the book of Exodus had to do with heroes. And it was so interesting who the heroes were. Because in the early chapters here in the book of Exodus, we have midwives who saved the lives of the Israelite baby boys by not murdering, killing them, and throwing them into the Nile. Uh, We have Moses' mother who saves his life by hiding Moses for some period of months. And, uh, and then Moses' sister who becomes a hero by somehow guiding the reed basket into the hands of Pharaoh's daughter. And I would even submit Pharaoh's daughter is a bit of a hero because I'm, I'm getting the sense that she decided to adopt and raise a little Hebrew boy uh, without her father's approval. I don't think he would have been all over that. And then you've got uh, Moses' wife, Zipporah, who saves uh, Moses from God killing him because Moses had failed to circumcise his son Gershom. And that's a real interesting story that we kind of concluded with last week. And uh, in all of those uh, many stories, there's kind of a pattern. Do you see it? Who are the heroes? Thank you. It's women. Yes. Women, says a woman. Uh, how God often uses women uh, as heroes. We, we see this throughout uh, the scriptures and uh, certainly in the Bible. Uh, and very often, too, it's, it's when mo- men don't do or won't do what they're supposed to do. I mean, think of Tamar and Judah. Think of Deborah and Barak. Uh, think of midwives with Pharaoh. Think of Pharaoh's daughter with Pharaoh. Think of Zipporah and Moses. And uh, we're not very far into the Old Testament just with those stories. And some of what God is doing, I think, is breaking down bad paradigms and false stereotypes. God is letting us see that he is at work in men and in Women. He uses males and females to bless and to lead and to serve, to advance his purpose in making a people, a covenant people for himself. Men and women have gifts. Men and women serve. Men and women are meant to glorify God. Now, men and women are also very different, and the scriptures celebrate that as well. While they may be gifted with the gift of leadership, men and women teaching, men and women helpful, uh, helping, administration, evangelism, whatever gift we might be talking about, but men and women are nevertheless different. And we celebrate, the Bible celebrates the differences between men and women. Back in Moses' day, uh, many women were viewed as basically property, either property of their father and that family or property of their husband. And they were people oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes with very few rights and, and often seen as having only limited or lesser value. But, you know, unless we get a little cocky and we think that we are so much more superior in our culture, we've come so far, we're so right, they were so wrong. Uh, Our culture, I think, while valuing women very often is not able or doesn't want to celebrate how men and women are, in fact, different. We're very different. Get married and you'll figure that out. Women are oftentimes in our culture, there's almost a subtext that women, in order to be successful, have to act like men. 
uh, women teachers, women professors. Educate like the male professors, you'll succeed. Women CEOs, well, lead and be a CEO like men are CEOs and you'll succeed. Women soldiers, this is so interesting to me that, you know, instead of appreciating gender differences and that that might have something to do with what women should or can do uh, and what they do best, you know, it's no, you, you be like and you act just like a male and then you'll be accepted as a soldier. And the only point I'm making is we live in an age where you have to be very careful when you talk about gender differences. And consequently, I think our culture doesn't appreciate, let alone celebrate those differences very well. And I've probably already said enough to get myself into trouble. So I highly recommend that if you want to engage me on this subject, email me. Here's my email address. It's daniel at deercreekchurch.com. Daniel at DeerCreekChurch.com. Now, here's the thing. In this conversation, or frankly, any conversation you want to have, we must always look to God's word to guide us, not to our culture. Because cultures are always wrong. Every culture of every time gets so many things so wrong. And in these uh, chapters of Genesis, God is challenging the prevailing views of men and women in that culture once upon a time. Just as today, he challenges many of the prevailing views of our culture. Now, again, Daniel at DeerCreekChurch.com. Okay, back to our story. Okay. Zipporah saves her husband Moses' life, saves him from being killed by God. You read it, Exodus 4. And now Moses is able to go to the Israelites and in the power of God, tell them just who God is and what God wants them to do. And so here in Exodus 4, uh, Moses, we read these words. It says, then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and also about all the miraculous signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of Israel and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people and they believed. And astonishingly, we're, we're told that when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. Uh, it's interesting, God declared to Moses at the burning bush, we saw this last week, that God did see and God did care and God was concerned about the plight of his people. And when they hear that God is that way, the response of the Israelites is really cool. It's, it's, it's one of worship. It's like, wow. Remember, they've been in bondage. They've been in slavery for 400 years. So this is a great thing. This is what God said would happen. And it's all working according to plan. There's just one more detail now. And that has to do with Pharaoh and getting Pharaoh to cooperate. And so we read afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me, a festival for worship to me in the desert. Now, this too is a kind of a striking exchange because it depicts Moses and Aaron as walking boldly and somewhat confidently into the presence of the most powerful man in the known world at that time, Pharaoh of Egypt. And they don't waste any time getting to the point. They don't have any formalities or bowing or things of that nature, which you might expect the, the writer to uh, recount for us. Uh, they don't even ask permission. They just say, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Let my people go. And then this odd thing happens. 
Pharaoh's not real excited about this idea. Not at all. Uh, Pharaoh said, well, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? Now understand, lock on to that question. That is the big question. That was the big question then. That is the big question today. It's always the big question. And that again is, uh, who is the Lord that I should obey him? You, you see, Pharaoh doesn't know the Lord God of the Hebrews. Hasn't experienced the power, the wisdom, the might, the truth, the judgment of the Lord God of the Hebrews. So he's asking, frankly, the right question. But he asks that question and he says, I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. You know, he's got his own gods that he worships. And at this point in the story, he absolutely and uh, he absolutely believes that his gods are vastly superior to these Hebrew slaves. And so things get a little worse. Pharaoh says to him, he says, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. And then down in verse six, we read these words. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and foremen in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to the lies that Aaron and Moses are telling him about their inconsequential, stupid, dumb little hick God. That would have been the Pharaoh's perspective. And so things for the Israelites go from bad to much worse, right? And there's some negotiating that goes on between the foreman and the slave drivers and the Israelites. It doesn't really go anywhere or achieve anything. And so now, not only is Pharaoh mad at Moses, so are the Israelites mad at Moses. And they say, what have you done to us, Moses? You're killing us here. Things were bad enough before you showed up. Now that you have shown up, they're just worse Literally, this is what they say. They say, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. That's what they say to Moses. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And so now Moses is under pressure from all sides. So it'll be interesting to see what Moses does. Does he pray to God? Does he fast? Does he seek counsel? What does he do? No, he does none of that. What he does is he complains to God. And that actually is the right thing to do. That's the right thing to do. The psalmist again and again complains to God. The psalms of lament and, or complaint. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. Before him I tell my trouble. That's what you should do. I think when we find ourselves confused or frustrated or, or stymied by what God is or isn't doing, the best thing to do is to talk honestly with him about that frustration, about that confusing uh, confusion, to pour out your heart honestly before the Lord. Moses says, oh Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? He's genuinely confused. He doesn't get why things aren't going the way he thought they would go. Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people and you have not rescued your people at all. Moses thought that the rescue would come quickly and, and God hasn't done that. And I, I think it's interesting. Moses is reminding God of the promise that he made. 
Have you ever done that in your prayers? You're, you're confounded by a situation and, and, and you find scripture and you pray scripture back to God. That's really what Moses is doing here. It's a good thing to do. That's the right thing to do with frustration and confusion is talk to God about it. And God here offers Moses a remarkably gracious reassurance. Again, Exodus 6, he says, Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with mighty acts of judgment. And I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Keep that in mind who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. And Moses does what um, God tells him to do. He goes and conveys that message to the Israelites and uh, not much changes. We're told that Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because, they're discour- because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. And frankly, that's not real surprising because when people are overwhelmed, when they are discouraged, often they don't listen and they don't trust And they don't believe and they don't obey. Discouragement will do that to you. Discouragement can crush the human spirit when you stay focused on your discouragement. It can get you thinking God doesn't care. God isn't working. God can't fix this. All of which is absolutely untrue. We read earlier, last week in fact, how God saw the plight of the Israelites and how God was concerned for the Israelites and how God was going to rescue them and fix things. But, you know, the people weren't looking to God. They were instead uh, not focusing on his promises. Instead, they were firmly focused on their problems. And while I suspect, um, well, I, I suspect we're no different. I suspect there are people here this morning that have some pretty significant problems going on and you're a little bit like the Israelites. You you feel beaten down. You feel discouraged. I mean, maybe it's in your spiritual life, something that is or isn't happening. Or maybe it's around your marriage, something that is or isn't happening. Or maybe it's around a job or maybe it's you're just sick of wearing masks or maybe it has to do with an election or a family problem that's too big for you to figure out and too big for you to fix. Well, you need to live in this story for just a little bit. I would suggest you read and and reread it and kind of soak in it just a little bit, always asking, you know, who is the Lord God? You know, who is this God who reveals himself? You need to hear from the God of the Bible because you see, when God is in the equation, when God is at work, things like defeat or hopelessness, they're they're never really called for. I mean, I get how we get there and how we feel that way, but those things are not called for. Even though maybe you've been struggling for a long, long time with something, You know, our story teaches us that God cares, that God sees, that God rescues, that God redeems. It's been 400 years for the Israelites. 
the circumstances and the timing in which God might work may not be what you would like them to be. I, I get that. God rarely works within our time frames, rarely. The psalmist cries out again and again, How long, O Lord? How long? And the answer? Well, a lot longer than you want. That's the answer. Author Tom Bernardo writes these words. He says, the psalms of lament are full of frustrated complaints asking God what's taking so long. 400 years of slavery before emancipation. Wow, long time. 40 years of nomadic circle spinning before entering the promised land. Wow. 70 years of oppression before returning from exile. Couldn't God get on with it already, he asks. Ever been there and felt that? Friends, nothing changed either when Jesus came. There's a Japanese theologian uh, who has this really, I think, wonderful insight. Uh, he refers to our God, Jesus in particular, as the three mile per hour God. Because everywhere that Jesus went, he basically went at three miles per hour walking. And this is God. God of the universe, accomplishing his purposes perfectly. And how fast does he travel? Three miles per hour. Wow. That's not impressive. <laughs> not to us anyway. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, our Lord Jesus Christ was never in a hurry. It is marvelous to contemplate the leisure of the greatest worker who ever lived. He always moved along with a holy calm and quiet dignity. And he therefore did everything with a quiet dignity. You see, friends, God makes it very clear that he is going to advance his cause, his kingdom, his purpose. He's just never in a hurry to do it. Perhaps because he's always doing so much more than we imagine, so much more than we can possibly fathom. There's just so much more going on. Friends, you know, I've got family members that I've been praying for for more than 20 years. Should I give up? Should I quit praying? Should I quit believing that God is going to come through, that God is going to work, that change can happen? I've got several situations in my own life that I have been praying about most of my adult life and redemption hasn't really happened yet. Victory hasn't come. I haven't seen the deliverance that I'm looking for. What should I do? Well, I, I think God says to me, Dwayne, just trust me, just obey me, just follow me, wait on me to work. Don't give up, not ever, don't give up on me. You see, the war is not over. Uh, there are more battles to be fought and I will win the war, God says. You see, God's plans are always bigger and different usually than we imagine. And things that look impossible, impossible to us, things that seem irredeemable to be irredeemable disasters are all fully known and fully a part of God's bigger plans. He takes even evil things and turns it on its ear and does redemptive things oftentimes with it. I love what God says in Exodus 7. He says this, he says, he says but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. 
And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. God knows exactly what's going on in the details of the story, while we do not. We scratch our heads and wonder what that means exactly. Well, I can't fully explain it to you, except that I do worship and follow a God who is in control and even overcomes evil because he knows the beginning from the end. And here we read that God knows all about what Pharaoh is going to do and is involved in the process. And then he says, I will lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And get this, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. That, friends, is always part of what God is up to in our circumstances, in the broader history of human beings. Now, in this case, he wants the Egyptians to know that he is the Lord. He also wants the Israelites to know that he is the Lord. But for that to happen, battles need to be fought. For the Israelites, the battle is just beginning. And God initiates a series of mighty acts. We refer to them as the 10 plagues. And when he finishes, the Pharaoh and all of Egypt will know that he is the Lord. And so also will the Israelites. Now, the first plague, you remember what it was, the Nile River, it turns to blood. That had to smell awful. Uh, think about that for a moment. I, I think this would have actually had some meaning to the Israelites in particular. Uh, the Pharaoh had ordered that the Nile be filled with the bodies and the blood of little boy babies being killed, right? And now as the first plague, God turns the waters of the Nile into blood. God is judging the Egyptians. That's exactly what's going on here. In the second plague, very different, uh, Exodus 8, God sends frogs and frogs and frogs and frogs and frogs. The writer goes to some lengths, actually, kind of painting a slightly comical picture, kind of ridiculing the pretensions of the Pharaoh who understood himself to be the incarnation of the sun god here on earth. That's what a Pharaoh thought he was. We read these words, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go, so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will go up on you and your people and all your officials. You're going to have frogs in your home, frogs in your bedroom, frogs in your bed and frogs in your food. That's what he's being told. And this will be seriously nasty. Will it not? Yuck. Disruptive to practically everything that goes on in the normal course of, a daily, of daily events. It's very difficult to get a good night's sleep or to enjoy the royal harem when the bed is full of frogs. Frogs in the food spoil a good meal, usually, right? So life is going to get complicated and messy and just, just very, very uncomfortable for Pharaoh and all of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 7, guess what Pharaoh's magicians do to show their power? They call up more frogs from the Nile. 
already had a frog problem with the population of frogs. Now the magicians call up more frogs. And what they're saying is, you're no big deal, God. We can do this. You're not so great. And here we have on display, if we're telling the truth, the power of Satan and his whole dark world. And make no mistake, that power is very real. Very real. Don't ever think it isn't. The power, that power, evil power, always attempts to overturn God's power or to counterfeit it for evil purposes. That's what the evil one does. And this is why the Apostle Paul reminded us in Ephesians 6, he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And it isn't. It never is. It's against rulers and against authorities and against powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's who we really battle. And that was true then. And believe me, that is still true today. Uh, And it seems that Pharaoh was impressed by the work of his magicians being able to call more frogs up out of the Nile. Uh, But then it suddenly perhaps dawned on him that all they were doing was really adding to the problem. Because what we discover is that while the magicians were able to produce more frogs, call them up out of the Nile, they could do nothing to get rid of them. And so the the problem just gets worse and worse and the Pharaoh becomes concerned. And so he says to Moses, pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people. And he says, if you do that, I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And then Moses tells Pharaoh, well, I leave it to you, uh, the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile. And Moses saying, you pick the time, you pick the day. And then I think I I want to ask somebody this question someday. This is just so weird to me. These, These frogs are plaguing everything. They're in your food. They're in your bed. They're all over the place. You can't get rid of them. Can't turn in any direction and not find frogs. And when Pharaoh is given the opportunity to declare when they're gone, he says, tomorrow. (laughs) Tomorrow. I guess he wanted one more night uh, with the frogs. I'm not sure. Uh, Frogs are everywhere. But he says, tomorrow. Maybe, uh, again, totally guessing, but maybe he's thinking, just maybe these frogs will go away on their own and I won't have to bow down to this, this God of the Hebrews. This petty God is what he believes at this point. Uh, We don't know. But there's an interesting pattern that starts to develop with these plagues, with these um, miraculous judgments that God is bringing upon Israel. The the plagues continue uh, to get more serious, more debilitating. Uh, Tension kind of ratchets ratchets up with each one. Uh, The next plague is gnats on everything, everywhere. And then it's flies, slightly bigger, even more irritating, everything, uh, everywhere. Then livestock die. Then there's boils on men and on animals. Then there's hail that comes and just decimates crops. Then there's locusts on top of that. Then there's darkness. And it's interesting going back to the gnats. With the gnats, the magicians, the Pharaoh's magicians are no longer able to keep up with God. They're not able to reproduce these these disasters. Gnats, flies, livestock dying, boils on the men and on the animals, hail, locusts, darkness. That's all out of their league, apparently. They can't imitate what God is doing anymore. And as some of you may remember, there's a little twist to all this. None of these plagues affect the Israelites. 
And that's very intriguing to the Pharaoh. In fact, we read that he actually sends emissaries over to check it out. Is what is happening to us happening to them? And they find out, they, they affirm that no, what's happening to us is not happening to the Israelites. Now in Exodus 9, this is on the plague of hail. The hail comes and it just beats down all of the Egyptian crops, does massive, massive destruction. And we read this, then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go and you, you don't have to stay any longer. And it looks like Pharaoh is relenting or maybe even repenting of his sin. He uses that word. He says, I have sinned. But moments later, after Moses prays and God relents, we read that when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So when the pain goes away, so does his repentance. In the times of um, pain, Pharaoh became spiritually sensitive, if you will. I, I mean, you know, this is not unfamiliar to us, if we're being honest. Again, in times of pain or pressure, our spiritual sensitivity can go way up. We become very open to God. We cry out to God, God, do something, help me somehow. But when the pain goes away and the pressure subsides, so does our openness and so does our sensitivity to God. So does our willingness to obey him and acknowledge how badly we need him. You see, even though Pharaoh uses words like sin, he doesn't really repent. He's just trying to do pain control. Sometimes we like to use God for pain control. When we do, we do so to our own destruction. That never works, not for very long. It never, ever works. You see, in this case, the two true test of repentance uh, would have been what Pharaoh does when the pressure is off. What, what does Pharaoh do when the pain goes away? Now, we don't really know Pharaoh's heart until then. And we see that his acknowledgement of sin was really only surface deep. So again, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And finally, the most devastating act of all takes place. It's the 10th plague, the final plague. God sends the angel of death. We read these words. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her hand mill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Can you imagine being in the home of an Egyptian on that night. Or for that matter, can you imagine being in the home of an Israelite on that night? I mean, it is the most awful night of death and judgment you have ever known. Unbelievable devastation. We're told that loud wailing occurred throughout all of Egypt. And we have to assume that hundreds of thousands of Egyptians die. It's the judgment of God. And the judgment of God is awful. It's severe. God is judging Egypt for all of their oppression and slavery and genocide and greed. And I don't know what all else. You see, it all catches up with the, the people 
of Egypt, denying the God of the Hebrews, but declaring that their God, the Pharaoh, is the one with all the power. Interestingly, this kind of thing catches up with all powerful nations. It caught up with the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Greeks and the Persians and the Romans, and it caught up with the Israelites. And friends, it caught up with the English and the French and the Germans and the Italians and the Japanese and the Russians, and it's going to catch up with the Chinese, and it's going to catch up with us too. Make no mistake about it. You see, God raises up nations, and God casts them down. He judges them. And at least so far, no nation lasts forever. No nation dodges the justice of God. Now, it's interesting to me. You know, sometimes you'll see religious figures, pastors or whatever, saying that this bad thing is happening because of God's judgment, connecting the dots, and wow, that's dangerous. That is so crazy dangerous because rarely do we actually understand what God is up to until 50 or 100 years or 200 years later, to be honest with you. So those kinds of declarations are not only foolish, they're very oftentimes just wrong. So don't hear me saying that. I'm just declaring the broader truth that God, when God is at work, he raises up one nation, he puts down another, he brings justice and thank God that he does that. Now here in our story, imagine you're an Israelite on this particular night and you're sitting in your home and you're wondering, has, is what Moses has told us, is that really true? Are we really going to be spared? Because we hear a lot of loud wailing going on out there. And we prepared the sacrificial lamb and we've, we've observed the Passover meal the way Moses told us to. And we put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of our home. And now we wait and we're just going to hold our breath to see what happens here. And it happens just the way God said it would. God passes over all the Jewish homes where the blood of the sacrificial lamb is painted on the doorposts. And of course, that's just a picture of what was to come, right? We look back and we see this picture. It's vivid to us. Redemption comes to all who are covered by the blood of the lamb. What did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus coming? He said, behold, the lamb of God. You see, the truth is we all deserve judgment. Our sins and unholiness deserve the punishment and the wrath of God. The Israelites were no better than the Egyptians. We are no better than the Egyptians, but the Israelites received grace because they were in relationship to this covenant God who had made promises to them to save them and redeem them. And so on that night, they listened to God and they believed God and they obeyed God and they partook by faith of the Passover lamb meal. And when the sun comes up in the morning, they are rejoicing because they are alive. You see, the Egyptians are not. As a nation, they are devastated. They, they are exhausted economically. They are exhausted agriculturally. They are exhausted emotionally. They are exhausted spiritually because their gods, who they thought were all-powerful, have been able to do nothing 
to protect them or overcome the God of the Hebrews, Jehovah God. And so they finally give up. They, they now know that Jehovah is the Lord. That's what they know. And word comes to Moses, mighty Pharaoh has finally relented. It's time to get up. It's time to go. And the Egyptians not only send the Israelites away, but just as God predicted, they give the Israelites anything they ask for, jewelry, clothing, silver, gold. And you would think that this great deliverance would fill the Israelites with faith, unshakable faith. Uh, nothing could cause them to stumble. Nothing could cause them to hesitate. But we go to chapter 14, Pharaoh changes his mind. That's not new. And he leads his chariots and his armies out to recapture Israel. And God is now leading his people, the cloud, the pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. And he leads them straight into what looks like a cul-de-sac. There's no exit. The Red Sea on one side, now Pharaoh and his troops on the other. This does not look good. And we read these words, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. And they were terrified and cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? This is not our great ringing vote of confidence for Moses at this point. Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Fact of the matter is, they didn't really say to Moses, it would be better for us just to stay here, Moses. It's funny how, you know, in certain contexts, in certain moments, you kind of re-remember the past, right? <laughs> and they, we're going to see this actually as a pattern with the Israelites, kind of not being very clear about what was in the past and thinking it was better than it was, but... You know, here, here in this particular moment, this is crisis. This is true crisis. But what we discover is, uh, as always, God isn't worried, not one bit. In fact, God is not panicked, not one bit. In fact, God has a plan, as he always does. God says to Moses, raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Nobody saw this coming. Nobody's ever seen this before. Nobody's ever seen this since. Moses does exactly what God tells him to do. And you know the story. The Israelites cross over in safety. The Pharaoh's armies pursue and they are drowned. They are wiped out entirely. And all of this, friends, all of this is presented to us by the writer as the sheer miraculous deliverance of God. Why? Because that's exactly what it is. You see, the message to them and to us is that God is working. Even when you think he's not, God is working. Nothing is too difficult for God, not this God. Nothing surprises him. Nothing flusters him. So when God wants to deliver, he delivers always in his time and in his way. When God wants to rescue, he, he rescues always in his time and in his way. When God wants to save, he saves always in his time and in his way. He is the God who delivers. He's the God that raises up one nation and puts down another. Raises up one people and puts down another. Now next week we're going to travel to the foot of Mount Sinai 
uh, together with the Israelites. But before we end our worship this morning, I just want to ask you a question in, in reflection on this part of the story. Is there anywhere in your life where you need a delivering God? Rephrase that a little bit. Are you living your life with the daily recognition that your God is a delivering God? You know, maybe there's a sin or temptation that you've been struggling with and it feels like it's got a hold on you the way Pharaoh had a hold on the Israelites and you struggle to get free and haven't been able to. Maybe there's a difficult situation or a difficult relationship in your life and you are not strong enough to handle it, not clever enough to figure it out and you feel stuck and hopeless, helpless. Maybe like the Israelites, you're you're just beaten down and discouraged. Well, I ask you, do you know that your God is a delivering God? You see, one of the reasons, not the only one, but one of the reasons why the book of Exodus was written is to let us know uh, just exactly who God is. You see, God, our God, is the Lord. That phrase again. God always wants his people to remember that he is the Lord. He is God Almighty. He is in control. He is at work. He has a plan, and we're a part of that. We always are. Our God is a deliverer. Now, I I will say this. I've got to be honest. Uh, God may not deliver you out of your circumstance in this life. He may kill you. Are you ready for that? (laughs) It's the truth. Your circumstances can lead to death, but, but at the moment of death, he delivers you. He delivers us, just like he delivered his son, Jesus Christ, who died for you on the cross to pay for your sin. Because our God is the Lord. He is a delivering God. Um, God delivered his people from Egypt. That was really kind of the anchor, the biggest story God had to tell. It was repeated over and over and over to the Israelites. They would repeat it to themselves. Our God is a delivering, rescuing, saving God. God is still delivering people today. It didn't just happen back then. God is still redeeming people from impossible situations. You see, impossible is our word. It means nothing to God. God is still liberating human beings. God is saving lost souls and broken souls. God still sees, he still cares, he's still concerned, he knows. And he didn't just, as I said, do that once upon a time for Israel. He does that today. He sees you, he sees your circumstance. He knows all about your situation. He invites you to pour out your complaint to him, discuss your situation with him. And the God who delivered his people uh, back then from the strongest power known on earth at that time, that God who delivered then can deliver now. And he obviously, he he demonstrated that most clearly in sending his son. The three mile per hour God. Who, yes, doesn't work in our time frame, doesn't even always work at all the way we want him to. But he's always working. And he's always delivering. 
Jesus delivered us from sin and death on the cross. That's the clearest example we have uh, of the, the great lengths that God will go to to deliver us. To close our service, I'd just like to have a time of prayer where if there's something about which you should be talking to God, then do that right now. Just you and him, and, and then I will close us in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, some of us this morning can give you thanks for ways that you've been delivering or have delivered us just recently. Others are still waiting on deliverance, God, and and struggling and discouraged. But Lord, we've been reminded from your word that it, it is so appropriate for us to bring these things to you again and again and again and again and to wait upon you and to trust in you. And to be reminded in stories like this, just just who you are. You are the Lord God Almighty. And we're thankful, Father, for that truth. We hold on to that truth. Be at work in us, Father, through our circumstances to make us more like your son, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for hearing our prayers. We pray them in Jesus' name, amen.